So we have some important events coming up. We've got the Halloween event coming up on October 31st. But uh, October 31st is also known as Reformation Day. Many, many of you don't know this, but it's, it's Reformation Day. It's the day in which Martin Luther, reportedly, according to Philip Langton, a good source, nailed his 95 theses onto the church uh, castle door of uh, Wittenberg. And uh, it's, it's, it's something that is celebrated, I think, all the way from Slovenia to Chile. I mean, me and my wife were kind of amazed some Latin American countries celebrate Reformation Day. Uh, but uh, I, if I were to take a poll, I'm guessing that most of us don't celebrate Reformation Day. And my guess is there's various reasons for that. Uh, some of us don't really know much about the Reformation. Uh, some of us feel a little uncomfortable celebrating some event in which Christianity kind of split in two, it seems, the, you know, Western Christianity at least. Uh, some of us actually um, don't even know uh, what we would do if we were going to celebrate it. Like, what would we do? Would we, you know, tack a, a list of kind of things we would like to see changed around the house on the refrigerator? You know, that's, that's our celebration. Are we going to go into work and, you know, and send out an email to everybody saying, you know, these are some things I want to discuss. We need to figure this out. How would we celebrate Reformation Day? Well, we may not celebrate Reformation Day, and I'm okay, just to be really clear, if you don't celebrate Reformation Day this year. But I do think that we need to acknowledge it, that it's worthy of our attention. And so this morning, I'm going to give a Reformation Day sermon. Yeah, yeah let's do that. Uh, Josh is pumped, so I got one amen in the house. He's the one that told me to do it, so he better be okay with it. <laughs> you know, the Reformation was a movement that changed millions of lives as it spread across Europe and then became global in its impact. And, and we want to ask, what was it about the Reformation that changed people's lives? What was so powerful about the Reformation? Uh, and that's what I want to address this morning as we take a look at the Reformation. And, and there's lots of places we could go. The Reformation is kind of a big target. But, but this is the first Reformation Day sermon, so I'm just going to head straight into it. Right, So I want to take a look this morning at one person who serves really as a catalyst to the whole movement, and that person is the German monk, uh, Martin Luther. I should say German monk and scholar. He was a scholar, had a PhD, but Martin Luther. So Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born in Germany, a small town, Eiselben, um, and just to kind of place Luther. So Luther in his elementary school years, that's when Christopher Columbus was sailing over here. Uh, when he was a young theologian, that's when Michelangelo was finishing the Sistine Chapel. And uh, Luther uh, had parents that were from humbler means. His father was a copper miner. They, as kind of, you know, poor parents try to do, they try to send their children out into life to do a little better. So they rallied and they put Luther not only through his bachelor's degree, but his master's degree so he could become a lawyer. And, and Luther was smart. He, he went through it faster than anybody could. And when he finished his last year of law school, as the story goes, and some of you may be familiar, he was uh, walking home, and there was a thunderstorm. And I don't know if you've ever been in a thunderstorm, but thunderstorms can be terrifying. I remember my sister Jamie, one time we were camping, there was a thunderstorm, and she just ran from me, our whole family and took off for like a mile to the camp where we lost her. And some people are really terrified by thunderstorms. Martin Luther was one of those people. And Martin Luther thinks he's going to die, and he says, he cries out to St. Anne, who is the patron saint of miners, and his dad is a copper miner, so that's kind of who you prayed to in his family. He cries out, if you save me, I will become a monk. Okay. So, guess what happened? He lived through the, the thunderstorm. And, uh, and sure enough, uh, he was delivered. So, 
to his parents' dismay, who just paid for, you know, uh, all this education, he keeps his vow, becomes a monk. Um, and becoming a monk was not an easy thing back then. They called it a conversion because you entered a cloister. You left your life in the world free to go wherever, and you took on certain fundamental rules, and you lived by very strict rules. You know, Martin Luther was a musician. I know we got a lot of people from the Berkeley College of Music here that are musicians. Martin Luther was really good at playing the lute. Any lute players here this morning? He was really good at the lute. He loved music. But when he entered the monastery, he had to give his lute over because that's not what we're going to be doing now. So it was a big change in his life. But he was a dedicated monk. He was one of those monks that was going to get an A-plus in monkhood. And reflecting on this period of his life, he says, I kept the rule so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by sheer monkery, it was I. That's his monkey. should be monkery. <laughs> Remind me to change that before the next service. <laughs> if I had kept any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, Bible reading, and other works. So Luther pushed himself. He pushed his body to the cracking rigors of austerity, and he sometimes engaged in total fasts. And in the winter, he would sleep without a blanket just to show how serious he was about keeping all of these good works. And, you know, the story could have ended right there. Just, just another monk, you know, in early modernity, working hard to make sure that he can get to heaven by his sheer monkery. Uh, but as all great stories go, and this is a great story. This is, you know, you've gotta, we've got to talk about this story. This is kind of a great story. As all great stories go, there's a problem. And here's the problem. No matter how many good works Martin Luther does, no matter how much penance he, he gives, no matter how many things he does, um, Luther cannot get rid of his just unsettling sense of, of sinfulness. There was a common phrase back then, uh, to do good is to be good. And Luther knew if he was honest, not just in terms of how he looked on the outside, he knew he was getting an A-plus in monking, okay? But on the inside, he knew his own heart. He knew his insecurities. And not only that, he, he actually kind of had a little bit of resentment towards God. Like, I am working so hard at being a monk, and this is hard, and I know this is what I should do, but I'm a little bit resentful, God. And he even confesses this. Like, I, he was carrying around this kind of feeling of like, you know what? And yet at the same time, he also has, and this is really hard for us to imagine um, in our period, you know, we kind of live, I think, in a new kind of um, stage in Western history where we're seeing the elevation of humanity and we can't imagine anything bigger or higher above us. But Luther had a very strong sense of the moral perfectibility, moral perfection of God, not perfectibility, perfection. And, and, and Luther had this deep sense that God is so holy and so absolutely radiant and stunning and superlative in his moral perfection, complete goodness. I mean, spend a little bit of time sometimes just thinking about the idea that God is absolutely good and moral, perfectly good. Luther did, and it terrified Luther. Um, Luther eventually became a priest, and he would actually do the rite of the Mass, and while performing his first Mass, Luther responded, who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. You know, the story is that he would just start shaking, you know, as he's holding the elements when people are coming up. Because he's like, what am I doing here? I'm a sinner. 
and I'm supposed to help these people come to know a holy God? So this is Luther's story. <laughs> he is terror-stricken. And, of course, he goes to his spiritual advisors, as you do when you're kind of going through a crisis, and their response is not good. They're like, Luther, just, just love God. Just love God and get over yourself. Uh, and, and that's not working for Luther. Um, one day, one of his advisors said to Luther, once again, just love God. And Luther says, love God? Don't you see there's parts of me that hate God? Interesting. So that was one element of Luther's problem. But there's another element. Um, Luther was deeply influenced by a certain movement. It's called the Via Moderna, the modern way, which for us is kind of weird because, you know, this is back then. But, you know, in the 14th century, I guess this way caught on. It was, seemed really modern and pressing. And um, it was led by different philosophers. Gabriel Beale, whose phenomenal commentary on Lombard sentences, it's another story, but really important work in the Middle Ages that kind of summarized the church father's teaching and different Bible verses, and they are put together according to subjects. And it was a good kind of thing to teach the people theology on. Gabriel Bill wrote this phenomenal commentary on this. So Gabriel Bill had a huge influence on Luther. He worked through those sentences. But Gabriel Bill also had this via Moderna way of understanding what it meant to become right with God. And the common phrase back then in Latin was quad in se est, which is do what lies within. The idea was not that you worked your way to heaven. That's a common misunderstanding among Protestants, but the idea was that God would do the lion's share of the work, but the sinner had to do the best with what they had. They had to, they had to do what lies within. Do your best, and God is going to make up for the rest kind of thing. And the problem was that for Luther is that he never knew if he did his best. In fact, sometimes he knew he did not do his best. Sometimes he knew, shoot, I, did, oh, I didn't do my best that time. I need to step it up. I need to step it up. I need to step it up. And so if you were to ask Luther, Luther, are you God's beloved child? Is God happy with you? The answer for Luther would be, I hope so. I hope so. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if you ask somebody, are you Christian? And they say, I hope so. That's a sure sign that they're not a Christian. Luther didn't really know the most foundational truths of the Christian faith. So, not only did the Via Moderna hurt him, there was another movement that actually helped Luther. It was called the Renaissance, as we learned in England. <laughs> okay, that's what they, or they say, the Renaissance. We say Renaissance. But it means the rebirth of classics. And Luther was living during a time where there was this amazing rebirth of the classics. People are reading the original sources. The, the cry during this time is ad fontes, get back to the sources, get back to the fount. And so this works to Luther's advantage. In fact, Erasmus published the first published Greek New Testament um, right around the same time that Luther is told he needs to go get a PhD in theology. His supervisor said, you're smart. We want you to teach theology. And so Luther now is meditating on God's word. Luther is spending time in the Bible. Um, and uh, in 1512, he finishes his PhD. He's assigned the chair of biblical studies. And during this time, he becomes fascinated as he's reading scripture and he's starting to teach through the Psalms. He's going to systematically teach through a bunch of Bible. Um, he gets fascinated with Matthew um, uh, uh, chapter, I think it's um, 11, I didn't write it down, but, or sorry, chapter 24, I think it is, where Jesus, who's on the cross, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And so Luther is fascinated with this. In fact, he starts to find a solace with this very strange cry of dereliction from the cross. And Luther starts to ask himself, why would, why would Christ cry this out? You know, Luther knows he's a sinner, but Christ wasn't a sinner. And Luther comes to the conclusion that the only way in which Christ could be crying this out is if somehow Christ was identifying with sinful humans. In other words, Jesus was being estranged from God the Father for us. And this was the beginning of a new revolutionary picture of God that Luther starts finding. Um, and this brings us right to our text, beautifully read this morning with that sexy Latin accent, um, Romans chapter 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live uh, by faith. So this is, many people think, kind of like the theme verse of the whole book. And Luther is teaching through the book of Romans as a professional theologian. And he comes upon this, and, he, and he's like, wow, what, what in the world do I do with this? It completely challenges Luther. But actually, this text ends up becoming the key that unlocks the entire Reformation. What happened? It's very fascinating. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to apologize ahead of time, but I'm going to read Luther's account of what happened when he was wrestling with this text. I had certainly felt overcome with a great desire to understand St. Paul in his letters to the Romans. But what had hindered me thus far was that one phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. I hated that phrase, the righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of the doctors, the Via Moderna, I had been taught to understand philosophically in the sense of a formal, active righteousness of God by which God, who is righteous, will punish unrighteous sinners. Although I had lived an irreproachable life as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God. Nor was I able to believe that I, was, that I had pleased him with all of my efforts, for I knew in my heart of hearts I didn't love God. In fact, at times I despised God. The righteous God who punishes sinners, that's what the gospel reveals? I began murmuring. I was angry with God, saying, as if it were not enough, God, that miserable sinners should spend eternity away from your presence because of original sin and with all kinds of misfortunes laid upon them because of the law which we have to obey, and yet now you add sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel, thanks a lot, God, and even bring wrath and righteousness to bear through the gospel? Thus I drove myself mad, and a desperate, disturbed conscience stayed with me persistently. I sat there with these verses pounding upon Paul in this passage, thirsting to know ardently what in the world this could mean. And then Luther writes, At last, God being merciful, as I meditated day and night on the connection of the words, the righteousness of God is revealed in it, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, I began to understand that righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by the gift of God namely by faith. And this sentence, the righteousness of God, is revealed to refer to a passive righteousness by which the merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written, the righteousness, the righteousness, uh, righteous lives by faith. 
This immediately made me feel as though I had been born again and as though I'd entered through open gates into paradise itself. From that moment, the whole face of Scripture appeared to me in a different light. And now, where I'd once hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, so much, I began to love and extol it as the sweetest words. So this passage in Paul became the very gate of paradise for me. He had this complete reversal. When he was thinking of the righteousness of God being revealed through the gospel, he thought we get re- what is revealed is that God is a just God, a righteous God, a God who will exact justice in the earth. And it terrified him. But then he had this moment where he realized it was something else. And that actually it was talking about a gift that God gives us, a gift of righteousness. And the result was an explosive power, a chemical reaction that went off, not just a relief from his previous lack of assurance, but a tremendous joy and comfort and power filled Luther's life. And you see this in what followed in his life. Now, I just want to say in a big parenthesis, congratulations, you just heard the largest red quote in the history of sermons. So you can pat yourself on the back right now. I can see it on some of your faces. Don't worry, we're done. No more of those. But I, I, could, I, I couldn't resist. It was so good. But, you know, this chemical reaction happened, and you can see this in what followed. And this takes us uh, right away to uh, the event that the Reformation Day is named after, um, which we might never have heard of Luther, but there was an incident that really triggered Luther after discovering this free gift of righteousness. And it involves this guy, John Tetzel. John Tetzel, um, he kind of took this kind of uh, via Moderna theology and he twisted it. What started out as God's grace as a result of your contribution turned into the idea that you could acquire excess merit from Christ and his saints. It's like they were so good. Jesus was so good and the saints were so good that they could reassign some of that merit to you if you did something righteous. But pretty soon it became pretty watered down to like, as soon as you give some money to the church, you're released from purgatory. You have, you know, you can, and some people started working the system like, oh, I can sin and I'll just pay money when I'm done to the church. Of course, we're raising money for, you know, the Sistine, for, uh, for the Vatican at this time too. So there's a lot of things going on. So Tetzel's preaching was more than bad theology. It bordered on blasphemy. But notice that Luther was irked. Why was Luther irked? Because Tetzel was saying that you could acquire the merit of Christ's righteousness through your own actions. You could do something by which you could create an economic relationship with God so that God would be obligated to give you his righteousness. You ever been in a situation where you have a business contract and you have placed obligations on somebody? I think this is what really bothered Luther. Um, And so this is where we come to October 31st, 1517. Um, Luther uh, goes to uh, put up his 95, we'll say propositions, for theological debate. Now, this was a common custom. Um, If you ever, it was the, the Wittenberg Castle door was just a place where you put public announcements. And uh, the people were were, were used to this. And Luther's list of uh, 95 propositions mostly are about the fact that indulgences can't remove guilt, and they're harmful because they give a false sense of security. Um, And uh, at this point, we could say, all right, Luther did not, by the way, think he was starting a revolution. This is a very common thing that you would do. Uh, I'm going to just tell you things did not go 
the way Luther thought. Luther thought this was going to generate discussion, kind of a, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you kind of bring some stuff up and you think it's going to generate helpful discussion, and it's kind of like you actually kind of, like, like you're in an alcoholic family and you name something, and, and suddenly it's like you're touching the whole system. That's what went down. And before Luther knew it, there was a papal bull that was out excommunicating him as a heretic. And so it's a bad thing to get a papal bull against you, FYI, back in the day, okay? And so the church authorities could not kill anybody. They can't shed blood, but the secular authorities can. And so the, the, the emperor of the Roman Empire, okay, Charles V, has a meeting. It's unfortunately called the Diet of Worms, maybe the most unfortunate name in the history of the world because nobody ate any worms and nobody was on a diet, okay? <laughs> right? But... <laughs> But what's happening is extremely powerful because Luther is brought there before everybody. There's the emperor, and his life is on the line. His books are laid out, and the question is, did you write these, and do you agree with what's in them? And the pope has already excommunicated him. So he knows if he says, yes, I wrote these, and yes, I agree, you know, we're done. We can, we're done for the day. Kill him, right? Think about that for a second. So Luther starts, and he, he answers Yes, he, he looks them over and makes sure they're his. And he says, yes, I wrote these. And then he says, I need some time to think before I give the second answer. So they're, all right. So he spends the night. We don't exactly know why. He came back the next day. And what he said is, unless you can show me, based on Scripture, why what is here is not true, I have to stay with what I've stated because it goes against good advice to go against what Scripture teaches. Well, uh, Charles V was not impressed. Uh, he says something like, this slime puddle, blah, blah, blah. Like, it was not, he wasn't like, oh, wow, what a hero. He's like, okay, kill him. You know, <laughs> like, it was like one of those things. And um, so, but Luther has two weeks grace period. He's leaving. He gets whisked away. There's a German noble that protects him um, in a castle. But Luther's life, basically, from there on out, is he is on the lamb. Lamb means on the run. Okay, his life is on the lamb. Um, Luther's extreme, like every prince knows that the emperor has condemned this guy to death. And if I kill him, the emperor's going to like me. So it's not a fun existence. You know, he's hiding out. We sang a mighty fortress is our God. Luther wrote that while he was on the lamb. And he was in a fortress, hoping that another prince would not come, fight against that German prince, extract him and kill him. Um, and he wrote that song as a reminder that his confidence is not in a fortress. His confidence is in God. And his abandonment is to Scripture and the Word of God. Very inspiring song. And, of course, people like to mock Luther. You know, there's the seven-headed Luther. And then there's, you know, uh, Luther is actually just the, the, the mouthpiece of the devil. And Luther is a beer-drinking German who's married Catherine and... They're just, they got a menagerie of things, and, you know, it's, it goes on. There's whole books of, like, all the, it's pretty fun to watch that. I, I like the cartoons in those times. But anyways, uh, the, but the bottom line is, and, and, and now we're going get, to get to really what we want to talk about this morning. The bottom line is Luther has this amazing, amazing strength and poise in the face of incredible, the most incredible pressure that you can imagine, just I don't know if we can really imagine any more pressure than the pressure Luther had to say something else than what he was convinced Scripture was saying. 
And Luther's life is just this life of amazing courage. And he, in standing up, he is a catalyst for the Reformation. Um, by the way, they weren't called reformers. They were called gospelers. That's what, that's what their name was in the Reformation. If you met somebody, they were called evangelicals, believe it or not. This is, <laughs> this is a long time ago, not associated with North American politics and our current cultural moment. You know, this is a time in which people recognize that these people, their life had been changed by the gospel. And there was a power in their life. All right. So, there's lots of lessons we can get from Luther. I've already talked Josh into letting me come back for the next 10 years to do Reform- Reformation Sunday. So we can talk about Luther's views on the Bible and the priesthood of believers and calling and the theology of the cross. But I want to focus this morning, in the time we have left, on Luther's central discovery. Luther's central discovery, which is really the catalyst for the Reformation. And his central discovery has a negative side and a positive side. So let's talk about the negative. And the negative is clear to see. Luther was convinced that he was a sinner. And we can look at that and we say, oh, tender conscience. Uh, you know, maybe he's just wrestling with false guilt. He's one of those people that just is easily crushed. But if you look at the testimony of Scripture, this is a common refrain. In Luke 11, Jesus is talking to his disciples, the apostles. And at one point he says, if you, being evil, give good gifts. Now, this is the apostles. The apostles, who Jesus says, if you, being evil, Give good gifts. He, Jesus doesn't say, to err is human. He says, if you, being evil. Uh, Jesus was convinced that his apostles were evil. evil. Now, that seems a little bit crazy. But if you start thinking about it, if God has given us everything we have, every breath we take, every good thing in our life comes from him, every single spot in our life, really, we owe to him in allegiance. And when you start recognizing how little we actually Give thanks to God. It becomes surprising. Um, Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says, Nothing good good in me dwells, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not carry it out. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. In other words, Paul is saying, The power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, and I need help. I decide to do good, but I don't really follow through. I decide not to do bad, and then sometimes I do bad. My decisions are such, as a, re, as a result, my actions don't have the effect I want. Something's gone wrong deep within me. Can anybody relate to this? I hope so. I hope I'm not the only person in the room. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the novel, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, is actually written based on Romans 7 where there's a person who senses there's something wrong within them, and then they take a potion, and then that evil all concatenates and comes out only in the evening. The experiment doesn't go the way that that, uh, Dr. Jekyll hopes. And um, uh, he writes, I knew myself to be tenfold more wickeder than I thought and sold to a slave of my original evil. Uh, And he suddenly has this character that comes out named Hyde. Hide means hidden. It also means hideous. So what Martin Luther, what Paul, what Jesus, uh, uh, what Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde knows, is that there is something deeply troubling within us that is broken. We just confessed this morning. Um, and so, but 
The temptation is that, is, is that we might have Luther's wrong response, his wrong solution. When we sense this brokenness, we can respond, I'm going to do better. We can just up the ante, up the ante, up the ante. I'm going to recommit, do everything just right. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to concentrate more. I'm going to sacrifice more. I'm going to do what I need to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with attempting to do what's right. But there's a deeper dynamic happening and that, when we kind of have that mindset. And you can see it in Luther's own kind of failing game that he had, his own failing game. Uh, if you see a college student who suddenly starts listening to Mozart's Requiem, you can know one thing. They have a music appreciation class in their schedule. <laughs> right? And the reason they're listening to the Requiem is because they want to graduate from college so they can get a job, so they get some money. Now, if you have season tickets to L.A. Phil, we also know that you love Mozart. When Mozart comes and you're there, you know, that it, so one person is listening to Mozart in order to get money, and some person is paying money in order to listen to Mozart. And the problem that Luther had is that he was being good as a means to an end. It was a way for him to get what he wanted. He wanted to have security about himself. He wanted to feel good about himself. He wanted to, to do something that, at the end of the day, was really about himself. And this is the danger that comes, oftentimes, is that our moral actions can actually be, a sort, be funded by a certain kind of narcissism. It happens a lot in churches where we decide that we're going to do the right thing, but really what's underneath it is pride and fear, feeding it. It becomes a self-focused moral life. So, <laughs> um, that's the bad news. In the words of Paul, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if we stop there, that we're sinners, that we're worse off than we would like to admit, it only slips you into despair, just like Luther. And this is where we come to the second thing, that when Luther really, I mean, when he really understood this, when the coin dropped, he said it was like the doors of paradise were opened. And what was that? What was the coin that dropped? Let's get to the positive. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is, this is at the core of the good news that Christianity has. This is what the Reformation was about. It was a rediscovery of the good news of God's sheer and unmerited grace. You know, Luther says that I thought it was talking about an active righteousness of God, but then I came to see it's a passive. Active means it's what God God's own justice and righteousness, the gospel isn't really ultimately about that. It's about the fact that God gives us a righteousness. See, the gospel is not just that God forgives us. In a minute, we're going to have communion, and we're going to celebrate that because of Christ's sacrifice, our sins have been pardoned. But it's not just that God takes our sins. He gives us something in its place. What does he give us? He gives us the perfect record of Jesus. He gives us the perfect record of Jesus. Luther discovered that the basis of a good relationship with God is not an act of righteousness that we perform, 
but a passive righteousness that we receive. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Luther called this an alien righteousness, that we need to receive a righteousness that is not ours, that's totally alien to us. It's something that comes to us from the outside. And, and the moment that we place our faith not in our own good works, but in what Christ has done for us, we receive his perfect merit. In other words, that the final word about us is the same final word about Jesus. Or in another phrase, simul justus et peccator. We can be simultaneously righteous and sinners. Become a Christian does not mean that you got your act together. It doesn't mean that you got yourself cleaned up, that you become presentable to God so he can love you. To be, a, to be a Christian means that you receive the kind of life you could never, ever fully live, a life that is exactly the kind of life that, that Christ lived, that all of his goodness is accredited to, accredited to us, and we have his perfect record given to us. And, and Luther said, on this doctrine, that we give Christ our sin. And he gives us his righteousness. On this doctrine, the entire church stands or falls. And in conclusion, I want to say this. It's not just that the entire church stands or falls, but our lives stand or fall on this. There's so many different ways. I'll give five. Five examples. Don't worry, they'll be quick, Ryan. I can see that look like, okay. <laughs> you got another long quote from Luther? Five examples, really quick. Josh just gave one, defensiveness. What is, how do you deal with defensiveness? How do you deal when someone is coming at you, and, and, and when someone points out something negative in you, one of the painful things for me is like, wait a second here, don't take that from me. What do I stand on here? How can we be completely honest about our failings? If we know, if the coin has dropped and we know that we've been given Christ's perfect record, we can say, have at it. Because whatever ways I failed are, is not the final word about me. The final word about me has already been spoken. It was spoken on the cross. And it can't be undone. That's one of the nice things about history. You can't undo history. It's done. It's finished, as Jesus said, from the cross. Or take hiding. Anybody here tempted to hide? Anybody married? Let me just put it that way. Anybody here tempted to hide? Right? I'm tempted to hide. But here's the thing. If my worth, if my value is found in what Christ has done, I don't need to hide. Because the final word about me is what Christ has done. Because who I am, ultimately, is based on what Christ has done for me, and I have his perfect, I can be, I can have at it. You can say whatever you want. At the end of the day, yeah, I'm a sinner. But that doesn't change the fact of who I am as a deeply loved person because of the grace of God. Uh, take, uh, take another subject. Uh, motivation for good. How can you go about doing good things without it becoming a means to an end? What is the, what is the, what is the motivation for Christians to be good? At the end of the day, it is a response to God's grace. We come before this table to remind ourselves that it's all God's grace. Here's a thought. Your worst day as a Christian and your best day as a Christian does not change the fact that you have the same status before God. 
the righteous acceptance, the righteous life of Jesus Christ. Identity. How do you secure your identity? Who am I at my core? Our culture has two solutions, a sociological solution and a psychological solution. Your identity is wrapped up in your social identity markers, and you're in a game of competition, you know, uh, and that's a very superficial way of understanding. But they say, okay, yeah, who I am is really what's going on on the inside, but then what's the game there? It's to dive deep inside and plunge yourself into the inner, you know, cavernous self to figure out who you are. The good news of the gospel is you can have something far more solid as a basis for knowing who I am. What am I at my core? At my core, I am a, I am a creature who the creator has loved and died for and made me his own. One final one, matter. How do you know that you are valuable? I mean, let's face it. Like, all of us walked in here with some things this morning that bother us. And if we had the time, we could walk through and show how, at the core, the thing that's threatened at some place, I really believe, comes down to this core truth. That there's something. If you're afraid of something, if you're fearing something, that word has gotten louder than the word that was spoken at the cross. It is finished. So how do you know your life matters? You know, you look at all the things we invest in. You know, we want to be beautiful. We want to be successful. We want to be somebody that achieves. All these things are to give us a sense that our life matters. We want to be beautiful, so people say, wow, we want to have achievement, so, you know, our success and our projects assure us that our lives are significant. We want to have experiences that we put on social media. We can let the world see, I'm living some cool life. My life matters. Some of us are desperately looking for relationships, so someone will look us in the face and say, you matter. But all of these are insufficient. These are simply attempts to justify our existence. The only true way you're going to know if you matter is it needs to be something that is not so vulnerable. And right here, where the creator of the universe says, I love you, I've given myself for you, nothing can change that. And if that's how you know that you matter, you have placed yourself on a solid rock, a solid rock that cannot be changed. There's not a more appropriate thing to do uh, than to look at this table um, and remember the sheer, unconditional, amazing grace that was poured out for us on that good Friday so that we can not only be pardoned our sin, but that we can receive the amazing record of Jesus Christ. Um, and so at this time, I want to invite our servers to come forward, as well as those who are going to be available for prayer. Um, I need to give some instructions. Uh, we're going to do things a little differently this morning. We're going to try something to see if it's a little bit uh, more um, smooth. Uh, we're going to have, on the inside, uh, me and Josh will be distributing the bread, and on the outside, there'll be two servers distributing the cup. And so you'll come forward down this row. If you're on the outside, you'll just go to the back and come down this row. And if you're from this side, you'll go down on this side. If you're from this side, you go down on this side. You'll receive the bread uh, from me and Josh, and then you'll receive the cup and partake of it right here. And then if there's anybody here that would like some prayer, we'll have some people on either side that will be there to pray with you. So this time, let's go ahead and receive the Lord's good gift.